Hey y'all, this is Jake, and before we get started with this week's podcast, I have an important announcement to make and also a request. The announcement is that the Golden Geek Award nominations are now open, and we would love your vote for Best Podcast. My ask is for you to go over to the BoardGameGeek.com website and nominate Decision Space for Best Podcast. You'll need a BoardGameGeek account and 20 Geek Gold to submit a nomination. If you don't have the Geek Gold, don't worry. Just let us know in our Discord and we'll get you sorted. There's a link to join our Discord in the description of this podcast, as well as a link to the nomination form over at BoardGameGeek. Here's a little heart to heart. We don't have any sponsors. We don't do any ad reads. We don't even do any paid reviews or game previews. We make the show that we want to make and we work hard to bring our listeners the best show that we can each and every week. We love making this show and prioritize the making of it because we believe that Decision Space and the Decision Space community add something different and important to the board game hobby and we hope our listeners value it as much as we do. The reason we're making such a big deal out of the Golden Geek Awards is not just the innate desire for external validation, though of course that's a part, but it is also the single best opportunity of the year for a smaller show like ours to gain traction with a wider audience. We would love nothing more than to grow our show and share this show and community with others in the board gaming hobby. So I ask you once more, if you ever listen to our show and enjoy it, Please take a couple minutes out of your day to nominate us for the Golden Geek Award. And thank you so much for your time for this announcement. And also thank you, as always, so much for being here and for listening to our show. Welcome to Decision Decision Space, Space. the only podcast to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And on today's episode, we're talking about getting in the way, blocking moves, and different games that feature these, as well as uh, spending some time talking about two recent plays that Jake had that feature blocking moves in games. One of Reiner Knizia's Zuvatis, uh, a new updated version of a classic Knizia negotiation game uh, that I'm very excited to hear Jake's fresh take on, and also Hansa Teutonica, sort of a, a legendary game that features blocking where you really want to get in other people's ways. Uh, and I'm very excited to hear Jake's thoughts on both those. And then, so we'll sort of spend, we're exploring a new episode format. We'll spend the first half kind of talking about Jake's recent plays of those two games. And then we'll spend the back half talking about blocking moves more generally. Uh, and I'll integrate some recent plays of mine as well uh, that feature blocking moves as I've been playing some Go and then also returning to Keyflower and also just Babylonia courses through my veins. So it might come up here as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I was going to say, I want to hear some of your recent plays too. I think this is a new format to us where we talk about some recent plays and then a, something relevant to those games, but it is a tried and true format in the board game podcasting space. So I thought we were inventing I'm, the wheel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this week, the wheel, next week, fire. But yep. Brendan, I think we have just a little bit of housekeeping. Do you want to jump into that? Yeah, speaking of fire, uh, we always love when people leave us fire reviews on whatever podcasting app you listen to, uh, whether it's Apple Podcasts or I think on Spotify, you can just rate the show. That goes a long way too towards getting the word out there about Decision Space. So I'm going to read a review uh, as a way of saying thanks to someone who left a review for us. Uh, So this review is called Great BG Analysis and comes from Sassier Rabbit. 
Brennan and Jake do a great job of dissecting games and calling out what makes them so special. Love hearing their weekly thoughts on the games they're playing, especially because they manage to cover such a wide range of games, new and old. It helps that their humor and banter keep the conversation engaging throughout. Definitely worth a listen. So thanks so much, Sassy Rabbit, for that review. 10 out of 10 review. Oh, yeah, we got to review the reviews. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Uh, Yeah, well done. And that's a great transition back into our episode because Sassy Rabbit is a friend IRL in real life um, that I actually met through this podcast in, in a kind of roundabout way. Um, and we have sort of created together a weekly gaming group, a game night, which is super exciting to me. And actually, you know, this might be surprising to some listeners, but since we've been doing this podcast, this is kind of the first time that I've had a weekly opportunity to game with the same folks. I sometimes attend an every other week one, or we'll just have friends over randomly, of course, to play, but yeah, I have a I have a game night happening every Monday night and that has been super fun and I think there's a great opportunity to take some of those plays and let listeners of this show sort of know about them, know our thoughts about them as a way to infuse more different game experiences into this show. And obviously for I am not a part of that group. I wish I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jake and I live in different states, so <laughs> Uh, That is not one that I have the pleasure of attending. So uh, with these games, I'm kind of sharing in your outsider perspective, really excited to hear what Jake has and to be kind of an active listener and jump in and ask some clarifying questions about these games. Mostly, especially the two games today, I'm just really jealous that Jake got to get these to the table. uh, And I'm really curious to hear his thoughts. So it's also it's nice, Jake, just having the not having to do any of the coordination week to week of like, are we going to have a game night? Exactly. Yeah. And I find that the every week format for me is actually just much easier to build in than the every other week one, because I can just know like Monday is game night where I and every, I'm involved sometimes within every other Wednesday game night. And it's always sort of like, is that this Wednesday or next Wednesday? And then you kind of like make plans or you sort of forget about it. And it's just harder for me to like commit to that type of schedule. Yeah. And if you miss a week, then it's almost been a whole month since you've exactly. got to play. Yeah, yeah. Or, so, or sometimes maybe the host can't do it that week or something, and then it's off for a month. Um, that's great, too. And that you know the, that those gaming experiences have been really fun as well. But this has been just really awesome and really welcome to, to my life. And can I tell you the name of our gaming group? Oh, please and, do. And our origin story. So, Absolutely. Yeah, so this gaming group uh, is titled The Laughing Table Friends. And the reason the origin story for that name is the first time we went over to one of the members uh, houses, we sort of have a rotating hosting duty, Sassy Rabbit, I and then uh, Pudify from our discord is the other person who hosts sometimes. And the first time we went over to his house, he sort of reported back that his three year old daughter asked at breakfast the next day if his laughing table friends were still (laughs) over. (laughs) that's awesome and we're just like yes that is like the most wholesome gaming group name ever so so adorable. we've adopted that and yeah i think laughing table friends content coming to you by way of this podcast for you know the indefinite future so exciting and yeah that's like one of the best origin stories naming of a thing i've heard in a long time three-year-olds should get naming rights first for most things i think yeah it's like so genuine and creative <laughs> So 
let's dive in though, Jake. Which game do you want to talk about first? Hansa, Zuvadis, Hansa, Zuvadis. What's it gonna be? Yeah, I don't know. What do you want to hear about? I'm, I'm having. I don't have a I strong mean, preference. Okay. Let's do Hansa first. Okay, I'm, Hansa first. Great. So Hansa Teutonica is a game that came out uh, for the first time in 2009 from Andreas Stedding. Uh, you might also know Andreas Stedding from his design Gugong, which is a popular game that has come out more recently. But I would say, Jake, that Hansa Teutonica has sort of, it's one of those rare Euro games with a shared player board where everyone's interacting in that shared space. Uh, and it's in recent times, I think it's really been elevated to one of the sort of cornerstone classics in people's mind of the like shared space strategy Euro game. So, and this yeah. has been bolstered somewhat by a new big box edition that came out that has some like extra maps. I've never played it. You have. What did you think? And I guess what what's the game? Maybe we can do a quick overview of the game itself too. Yeah, so I can talk just a little bit more about how Hansa Teutonica works. And we did play the big box edition of the game, though we just played the base game version of that big box. And I think that's sort of the, the main edition that's running around these days that people are likely to encounter. So in Hansa, as you mentioned, it's a Euro game and it's all about building routes between different cities in Germany. So between any two cities on the board, you will have between three or four slots for you to place a cube. And once all the cubes have been uh, filled in of your player color, you get some kind of benefit. Uh, if some of the buildings trigger uh, like a special, they're sort of like your upgrade, you can increase the power of one of your actions. And I think there's like six different actions involving how many pieces you can put out on the board, how many of the pieces on the board you can move, how many actions you get in total. So that's a hugely powerful one, increasing from two to three actions early on. It's like, you know, that's a 50% increase in action efficiency. Um, and others give you just ownership of the city block, meaning that anybody who completes that route moving forward, uh, you will get one point from that. So huge. while getting an extra action efficiency is hugely important, maybe it's even better to mm. early on take control of that city so that anytime any player upgrades their action efficiency moving forward, you get a point for it. And this is a game that, I think roughly the end of the game triggers once somebody reaches 20 points, I believe. And then uh, there's some end game scoring. So total scores are going to be around 40. So one point here and there is a pretty sizable part of your potential end game score. But the key interaction in this game is really around those routes between cities, because once you place a cube there, another player is able to displace it but that means you get to move that cube to an adjacent route and add another cube from your supply to the route, creating, again, just really important action efficiency for the players. So the game, I think, becomes really about who can do the best job of identifying what routes are going to be most desirable and profitable to other players and just getting in the way. And over the course of the game, you'll create kind of an overwhelming amount of action efficiency almost regardless of what else you're trying to do. Um, and at least I found in my two plays that the person who it seemed like was getting bumped the most, putting themselves in the most profitable position, uh, became the winner of the game both times. And I think that's sort of exactly where you'd want this type of player interaction, this type of Euro game to live. So this recent play was really exciting. I was in 
dead last um, going into the final scoring and ended up jumping everybody to take the win, which was shocking to everybody at the table, me perhaps most of all. Um, But, you know, I, I really felt like I was putting myself in position to just get bumped over and over again. You know, maybe other people had more coherent total strategies, but nobody had yeah. more cubes like put onto the board than me. And at the end of the day, that paid off. Um, and it, it was a ton of fun. So did you know going in, Jake, that you wanted to play this like blocking strategy to just kind of like get in the way so people would have to bump you and you get the little bit of payoff for that? Or did you like identify quickly that that was like the open path for you? I think that the, this is the strategy of okay. the game. Like, I don't think, have you played Hansa? I've never played Hansa. I really yeah. want to, but I don't, yeah. So, yeah, the, I think the different there are different strategies of the game are more around which of your player actions you choose to upgrade um, and then kind of focusing in on maximizing those. But like the route to any achieving any of those, upgrading them all the way, you get sort of some end game points if you do completely upgrade something. But, you know, in order to do that, you're going to be jostling with people the whole time. Gotcha. You can't ignore the the route building sort of puzzle. I don't route building is not even the right word, like the route filling part sure. of the game, because that's how you do anything in the game. And it's then all revolved around that. Are the routes variably set up? So every time you play the game, the like buildings between them are different or something? Or how does that work? No. So there, there are different maps gotcha. uh, in the big box, I think. But I've so I've played this twice and both times the map has been exactly the same. Yep. And honestly, I think that my expectations going into this game the second time made it a whole lot more fun than the first game where I was really perceiving like all the blocking mm. and bumping as kind of just annoying, right? It's like you're just like getting poked by people all the time. Like whenever I put a cube down in the first game, it felt like I'd try and put a cube in a place that I thought somebody else would want to go and then nobody would go there and just sit there giving me like no benefit. Or whenever I was trying to complete a route, it would get my pieces would get bumped out and I wouldn't be able to get it. And I, you know, I I think I wasn't able to even get the extra action efficiency until halfway through the game. Yeah. Um, And so I just fell way, way, way off the pace. So this time I sort of realized that I, I was focusing much more on just trying to Rather than like, I really want to complete this route, just like putting my places pieces in the most annoying places possible, sure. right? If somebody already has like three cubes down on a route and they just need one more to complete it, like it's really likely they're going to block you there. Sure. Or bump you rather. Yep. Um, so just trying to find, really just trying to find those as much as possible. I think my first move of the game was just putting one cube on. So some of the buildings have uh, two paths to it like you could approach from the east or the west type of deal yeah so i put like one on the east and one on the west route to that extra action it's just like i'm gonna get somebody's gonna be bumping me here right away and um let's like get it going and yeah so i mean what was your question sorry it's early (laughs) no 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 i was asking about variability but it sounds like so much of that is just the way in which you approach building out those early routes sort of organically creates variability in the way the, the yeah. play plays out. And then what someone does in response to what you do is really where the true variability comes from. Yeah. At least on that base map, which everyone seems to love. It was so important approaching this game. It's like just trying to change my mindset. It's not annoying when you get bumped or whatever, or somebody goes in a space that's like you need to bump them. It feels it's, great. That's actually like the fun part of yeah. the game. Interesting. You know, and if you can go into the game 
realizing that and appreciating that this is just like the ultimate game of passive aggressive cube placing, then you're probably gonna have a good time. Whereas I could see some people finding it more just kind of like, I can't do what I want. You know, it's exactly the type of game where you can't say this is going to be my strategy going in and just do that. Like, I'm just going to force maxing out my action thing, because if people are blocking you from doing that over and over again, it's just not going to work for you. So you really have to let the game come to you in a way that I think can be satisfying and it can be frustrating. Is it fun on both ends? Like, do you have fun being bumped and blocking other people? Is that sort of the the thing that kind yeah. of is elevating Hansa for you? Is that, yeah. Getting bumped is like the best thing in the game yeah, for me. Sure. Like every time I got bumped, I was like, oh, like don't mind if I do. You sure. Because you're getting like a double action basically. Yep. Like, and it's on somebody else's turn. It's great. It feels awesome. I think the things that feel bad are when Having you, to bump the, the worst thing is when you put down a, piece thinking that somebody's definitely going to go for this and then 12 rounds later around the table it's just like sitting there and nobody else has tried to go for that route at all there can be a big sunk cost fallacy thing here too where like tyler and i both had one piece on a route that was desirable to both of us and both of us like wanted to get bumped so just like nobody ever advanced that so we were basically just like down a cube for like 75 percent of the game because Love it. So that can feel annoying. And it also can feel bad getting blocked, right? Where it's like, okay, great. I have two down here. And then somebody put a merchant down. So you've actually, there's two types of cubes. Most of them are just cubes. But there's like these little tiny cylinder pieces too that uh, are just even more difficult to bump. Mm. Like when you bump somebody, uh, you have to pay one extra cube to place yours down so like not only are do they get an extra cube it's sort of costing you one yeah and if it's a merchant it costs you two ouch so that can be like you bastard yeah so so getting blocked isn't fun in this game it's really being blocked and being bumped is the joy yeah being the blocky and the bumpy for sure (laughs) that's where you want to live which i think is true of most blocking moves in most games as we'll kind of get into for sure definitely so normally on the show jake you know when we're talking about games outside of the like recent plays episodes which i guess this falls into somewhat we might play a game 10 20 times before giving our impression you're two plays in do you think this is going to be a regular rotation game for the laughing table friends group i think that the laughing table friends group will not have regular plays games you're just gonna play all the games it's just too many like board game enthusiasts you know it's the kind of thing where it's like if you know four of the five people are all i don't know how many games like everybody has like 100 games at least i would guess you know and when you've got like 500 games in your shared collection yeah you're probably just not gonna return to one that much all you're gonna Uh, do is play babylonia yeah exactly but that's not really your question i think you know, so playing two of this, my impression of Hansa is rising. The second play I liked much more than the first. Yeah, it's not to me a ten out of ten or a nine out a nine out of ten game, uh, like it is for so many people. I think for me, I do like a little bit more on the multiplayer solitaire side for Euro. Like, sure. like I like having a little bit more autonomy to be like, I want to pursue this path. Yeah. Uh, and see how that goes in this play. And you can't really do that in Hansa. It sounds um, way more up my path, to be honest. Yeah, I, yeah. I think you would like it a ton. I think it does manage to hit a really nice sweet spot of yeah. sort of being this like hybrid game that is a Euro game that really will appeal to people that are more enthusiastic about high interaction territory control type of games. Um, so, I, you know, there's definitely a reason why it 
is as kind of widely revered as it is. So I'm not trying to take anything away from it. Just for me personally, it's probably more like 7.5, 8 sure. range, which is good. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I think I would play it again, you know, given the opportunity, but it, it wouldn't be my first choice. Totally. It, it is a 14 year old game. So it's pretty yeah. good. Also, yeah. just one final question. How long were your plays? About an hour? Uh, a little longer than it's like that, an hour and a half length game. Yeah, yeah, probably ninety minutes. Yep, and and both of those were four, four player games. That's pretty zippy for a four player interactive game. It, it, yeah, I'm trying to think. It maybe maybe two hours. Even. Okay, okay, ninety so two. I would say. Okay, interesting. That's helpful. Should but we? Uh, each time there have been new players. Actually, I I think um yeah so yeah so with maybe new players factored in. It could be played quicker, but it, there's definitely moments, too, where you're just kind of like, it's also the kind of game where the board state can change a lot, right? Sure. Like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. And then right before your turn, you know, somebody like maybe completes the route or like bumps you or whatever. And now it's very likely you'll be in a pretty different situation. So as simple as the mechanisms are, it's difficult to pre-plan fully, making it maybe just be a touch longer than you'd think. Sure. That makes a ton of sense. But Zuvadis. The yes. other game you played is a it's a quickie, right? This is a pretty fast game. Yeah. So when we played, we actually played Zuvatis on the same night, and Jared, also in the Discord, was really excited to bring this out. He, he was sent a copy from uh, Bitewing Games. So this is like a pre-production copy, but it looks great. You know, it's not like this is not a prototype. I mean, I guess it technically is, but it looks awesome. So he was sent a copy by Bitewing Games actually to bring to Geekway to play with the decision space meetup people. So they'll, you know, if you're coming to that, come seek us out so this is a game that will definitely be hitting the table there as well and you know big thanks to uh, bitewing games for making it available for us to try yeah so zoo vadis is a negotiation game by reiner canizia uh coming out i guess imminently i don't really know i'm not a good journalist i don't know if there was like a kickstarter or what for this but maybe it's just coming to retail there was a kickstarter okay yeah that's right so there is a Kickstarter, but probably it'll be available at retail too. Yeah, I'm sure. Anyway, so this is a negotiation game where each player plays a different animal species in a zoo, and you're trying to move up several different pathways. They're kind of like routes to the top of the board. So you'll start with your pieces sort of just in your general supply, and then you'll have to add them to spaces at the bottom of the board and you want to work your way up so that at least one of your animal figures are make it all the way to the top of the board into the final space, which is the star exhibit. In classic Kinesia fashion, getting to the star exhibit doesn't in and of itself get you points, I don't think, but it does make you eligible to win. So even if you don't have even if you have the most points, if you don't get one of your animals into the star exhibit, you cannot win can i jump in really quickly so yes zuvatis is an update of the 1992 uh quo Vadis, which i think with, with getting to the star exhibit was getting to the senate right and then the reason there's blocking this game jake is because all of those routes there's like all these different routes which some of them come together and some of them spread out but they only have room for a certain number of pieces to move through right so you could get ahead of me on a track and then i just won't ever to get get past you going that direction so i'd have to go a longer way around 
and that sort of thing. Is yeah. that right? Okay. That's that's part of it. That's I, that's a big part of it. And the other part is this, as I mentioned, this is a negotiation game. And the way that works in this game is that in order to advance from one, I don't know, exhibit or pen to the one space to the next space along the route, you have to receive a majority of votes of all the pieces in that space in order to be able to advance one of your pieces. So let's say there's three spaces, like, you know, three spots that you could place one of your figures in a space. If you have two of your figures in there, you're good because you can vote twice for yourself. So two out of three, that's a majority you're in. If you have one and another player has two or two other players have one, then you have to receive somebody else's vote in order to advance your figure and that's where the negotiation comes in because uh, in this game you can offer when you move you'll like collect some point tokens those are points at the end of the game so you can say hey i'll give you a point or i'll give you two points if you vote for me to advance here Uh, there's also each player faction has a unique player power which you can offer to some i think you can use it twice a game and you can offer it to somebody in order to sweeten the pot or, or whatever. Even if it's not in a voting portion. Like I played the uh, Ibis and my power was I could enable somebody to move into a space that was already at capacity. Oh, so interesting. Okay. If somebody needed to move forward. I could say, hey, you can go ahead and move there if you want. And I'll let you use my power for a point or whatever. Could you use it on yourself or can you only give it to other people? You can only use your powers on somebody else. To, Great. To, so cool. Which is cool. That was actually one of like the small nitpicks I had with the game, which was, and I said like caveat, 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 asterisk, 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 because we, we played this once. And when we played it, we were sort of in a rush situation. So we all collectively agreed. Like, hey, we want to like learn this game and we're going to play it fast because we were trying to get it done in 30 minutes. We didn't know how long it would take, but, you know, Jared's like, oh, it's, you know, it's short. It'll be fine. And we ended up playing this game in 16 minutes flat. Whoa. So I think we like we so we played it like blitz mode, which is awesome that it can be played that fast. But I'm so I'm going to say like, here's my small nitpick with balance which should just be like taken with like a metric ton of salt. But here's the nitpick. The faction that won was the crocodiles, I believe. Rhinos? It was the crocodiles. Maybe rhino. I anyway, wasn't there, so I don't know. Yeah. It Well, so, yeah, oh, I can't yeah, remember. There's a crocodile. My bad, my bad. Well, it, it was one or the other. And um, the their power was when somebody moves, they can use that power to move another player's piece along with them. Ah, So the way that the player uh, was navigating the space here was they would say like, yes, I'll vote for you to move, but you have to move my own piece along with you when you use the power, which is totally legal in the rules. But as like a level one thing, it was, it seemed to be the most powerful power by far of the ones that we were playing with because it was so easy to engineer a way to like have your own power give you a benefit. Whereas like with the Ibis, I can, you know, move somebody else into a space that's already full. Maybe there's a way to like, you know, over a couple turns, like, okay, I'll move you into this space. And then next turn, you like have to agree to like, give me a vote or something. But it, you know, that would require them needing to get into that space and be willing to like, do all these things where 
being able to just like shake hands and both get the benefit right away made it much easier to do, especially in that truncated time we were playing in. And players not involved in that deal have no ability to sort of say, whoa, that's veto that deal or something, right? Like you could always, yeah. as the Ibis, the two times you use it, get someone to agree to take you with them. Or Ooh, as yeah, the not crocodile. The Ibis. The yeah, crocodile. exactly. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And it's also should be said, this is a pure negotiation game. So like the meta is going to change fast. Yep. So players could collectively agree just like, hey, the crocodiles aren't going to win this game, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Because like that would be totally within the pl- power of the players to say, like, hey, nobody's going to vote for them, right? They're going to get stuck. There's nothing you could do individually as a player to like outwit if the table was against you in that way, which I'm not advising either. But I just think like it, we didn't realize in that first super quick play that we were just giving everything to the crocodile player. Yeah. I think not only were we... It's kind of good to be able to use your power in the first place because when somebody uses your power, I think you just get a point or two Mm. like as automatic from the bank. Right. And the crocodile player was getting like, so they get the two points. They were like, I'll let you use the power. You have to give me a point and take me with you. So we're just, they were just engineering these super lopsided deals that were difficult to identify in that first play is how, how much they were getting. So next time we play, if we played the same group, it would be like, Whoa, 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 probably we shouldn't be giving them all everything and also more. And a point. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I do think, I my suspicion is that like that faction will win a, a lot of first games that they're involved in just because of how like on its face powerful it is. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was fun. Uh, I can't really say more than that just because of how strange the play was negotiation is so not my cup of tea in general and this is a negotiation game there's no getting around that i the the thing that always strikes fear in my heart with negotiation games is that it's just open-ended right like i don't want to be sitting at a table and where somebody is like yes now i have the gavel and i'm just gonna like hold court for five minutes trying to get the best possible deal for from everyone around the table i think this game is simplified enough that you probably don't have that cropping up too much but that you know that's baked in here i like the fact that we chose to play it so quickly and maybe instead of like 16 minutes like 25 minutes would (laughs) Would have been good sweet spot yeah but i you know we're sort of talking about like next time we'll give this game more of it a deliberate play where we can actually think through it a bit more explore the decision space a bit more and then we thought about bringing it out last week when we had 30 minutes to play something and we kind of opted against it because i don't know i think there's just some interesting tension between sort of a filler weight and like time spanning game that also features negotiation which is like inherently variable. Yeah, it seems like maybe this is the kind of game where that whatever group is playing it, there's like an equilibrium of the right amount of time for it to exist in. And maybe mm-hmm. wanting it to play fast is not quite going to end up being the best version of what comes out of it. Do you feel, Jake, when you're playing it, do you feel like if you played it again, you have enough tools to negotiate with? And that that ability to sort of, so much of negotiation games are about like, a shared assessment at the table, uh, right? Like everyone's reading the board together. You all have different perspectives on maybe who's who's in the lead. Uh, and then you're trying to use um, ambiguities between that shared assessment or differences in that shared assessment to try to carve out value for yourself. Do you feel like 
uh, Zuvatis gives you the tools you need to kind of make interesting deals. Yeah, I do think so. It definitely feels like it's skirting that line. Sure. Between being like, I have a lot of agency to make a deal, which can be bad, as I've already sort of expressed, right? Like too much ability to negotiate is that can just like increase the time. Yeah. Um, so you definitely have blunt tools for it. But I think there is enough going on because not only do you have your powers and points, there's more you can do on your turn beyond just moving your player pieces. Mm. Uh, there's a farmer or not a farmer. It's a zookeeper piece that can move around the board that makes it free for anyone to advance down that path. I think without a vote, I could be getting that wrong, but some benefit if you advance through the farmer space. I think it's that like you can move without a vote, which is interesting, right? Because again, it has the same sort of dynamic where it doesn't really work for helping yourself because if you move it into a space that you're in, then probably somebody around the table will get to take advantage of it before you. Yep. You know, you're kind of helping somebody else. So it's more of like, again, a negotiation piece. Like, okay, maybe I can't broker a deal to help advance my game, but hey, I'll move this. You're up next. What do you give me if I move this farmer for you Right. to help you out? And then there's also these neutral pieces, the peacocks, which I guess are new. I can't verify this, but Jared said these were inspired by Renatures. Oh, uh, interesting. Neutral okay. pieces. And those just can sort of just move just to block space. Gotcha. In in different pens. Uh, and also they can go all the way up to the star exhibit. So wow. if if a peacock gets in there, that means somebody's for sure not getting in there. If two get in there, then two people aren't getting in there, which is what happened in our quick game, our truncated game, which was the game ended. So I think it's like went the the fifth. There, I think there might be different by player counts we were playing with four and i think the game ends once five figures go into the pen gotcha and our ended with somebody moving the fifth peacock into the pen and it was somebody who like wasn't in there It was like me and another player both didn't have any animals in the pen and realized like we were gonna lose so we just kind of like we kind of like hand shook and we're just like yeah we'll just like let's just end it here because there's no chance that we'll be able to win so might as well just stop the game at this point and end our misery (laughs) which is kind of a strange dynamic too yeah where it's like okay we're out of it so let's just like be done but i guess it's nice that you have that outlet anyway (laughs) interesting I this is so much not your type of game, so it's interesting hearing you your take on it. Um, I feel like it being quicker probably lends it to being a more favorably, like you being more open to it. I'm definitely interested in trying this one just because I really like negotiation games, and I'd like yeah. to have one that's a little quicker. I mean, it's one we should definitely play at Geekway. I probably will give it like one more play and sure. see if I like it more. And if I don't, that has more to do with the fact that like negotiation mechanisms are just something that I personally don't enjoy as much. Sure. Because you like when the game lives on the table more so than above the table, I would say, as like a baseline. Yeah, I like, yeah, I think that's sort of my player type is like, I like the game living on the table. And then I like to like play those games like very above the table. Sure. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yep. But it's like solidly- that's the idea. Like we can really heckle each other and like have fun at each other's expense. But yep. for the most part, we're still able to like kind of advance our game. Yep. Beyond that. On your own. Yeah, well, cool. Thanks for talking about Zuvatis, the new Bitewing version of Quovatis from Quovatis Verena Canizia. I'm excited to play that one, Jake. Yeah, I think it's likely that we'll discuss it again on, on this the podcast, probably in our 
geek way wrap up. Yep. Cool. Well, I think that now is like a natural time to sort of pivot to talking about blocking moves in games more generally. Well, uh, we didn't talk about any games that you've played, Brendan. We didn't, but you know, okay. I feel like it'll come uh, tell up. Tell me about this, Go. Tell me about Go. In the second part of the discussion. Okay. I've been playing a lot of Go and I'm, I've am i never played Go before in my entire life, but I had a passing interest. Go has this sort of legendary reputation. It's one of the longest games played, I think, in human culture, which is a really amazing thing. Um, and I was just interested in learning more about Go. Obviously, there's people who really love Go and sort of dedicate a ton of their time to playing it. Uh, and I think Go also has a reputation among people who play it as it being a little tough, at least in the West, to find opponents. Uh, so a member of our Discord, Krill, has been kind, and uh, he's been willing to kind of teach me the game and play with me, uh, which means mostly I've been being smacked around and go, as there's lots to learn. Uh, and it's been an interesting journey. I think we've played 10 games. I've, of course, won zero of them, as Go is a sort of like classic abstract where the player who's played it more will uh, have an advantage. But I've been eking away some, some sort of... Uh, some some small incremental advantages towards getting better. And I have a sense for when things are really going wrong versus when things are going okay. And I'm playing a losing position to the end of the game, uh, which is, it's been fun. I, I really, I'm intrigued by go. I think go is one of those games where so much of playing it is learning to wrap your head around the type of moves that will be beneficial. The puzzle is so, uh, so important. And there's so many, wrong moves that you can make in a game of go uh, and there's a ton of right moves that you can make in a game of go that fall into these sort of set patterns that i think i'm slowly starting to identify so jake there's these sort of this thing called eyes goes a game where it's about surrounding the other players pieces and if you fully do that you can capture them eyes basically ensure that your pieces when they're connected to a group uh will always have a space that the opponent can't fully fill in so they all have what are called liberties in go which are these empty spaces next to them so if you can build your board such that you have these eyes within your position these sort of holes then you know that that's safe uh, i found that knowing that i need to be integrating these into my uh, sort of structure as I lay out my pieces is easier said than done in some cases, um, which is kind of interesting. And I think so much of Go and why it's relevant to this blocking episode is a lot of the moves that you're trying to place are sort of, you don't want to overextend your position, leave a piece out to being captured, but you really want to be placing your pieces in the place that your opponent most might want to place theirs, blocking that path forwards uh, in their play and kind of deterring them from moving in a certain direction on the board. So you're also really controlling an area. I'll also say, Jake, Go is played on lots of differently sized boards. And I guess for beginners, you typically play on a nine by nine uh, size board. So it's fairly small, which thank goodness, because I'm not ready for a larger size board yet. Um, so I'm kind of playing baby's first go and still kind of having a tough time, especially in the fightier games. Um, I can play a passive game fairly well. Speaking of small boards, I was laughing at your expense because Krill kind of did a little demonstration oh, we game played, yeah. with you in, in the Discord. <laughs> I was like, what was it, like a three-by-three three grid? Uh, Something like that. Or no, that. two by two. It was no, two by was, two. I think it was bigger than that, but maybe. <laughs> no, yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> it was like, okay, you go first as like a little teaching and you guys played it like sharing images, I guess, like back and forth. And, it's basically you, like losing tic-tac-toe. Yeah, you lost. I lost yeah. tic-tac-toe. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it was a good learning exercise. And something about Gojek that I've realized is I'm kind of at the point where I think I need to to study the game. I need to go yeah. in and do some exercises that will regularize and help me see the patterns that I need to be playing towards 
uh, a little bit more to sort of stand a chance against a much stronger opponent. And I think I'm having enough fun that I want to. Um, but part of that, I think, is also just my sort of core desire to deeply understand games generally. And yeah. because of Go's sort of position within gaming culture, like I wouldn't mind sinking more time into it just to understand it a little bit better. Yeah, that's it's so interesting because I think we could do if we did like sort of a competitive game episode, but it's like something about like an episode about studying games mm. could yeah. be interesting. It could be interesting. I always do the same thing with like chess, like the chess.com app on my phone or whatever sure. that has like all these lessons and you can like play asynchronously against people. And I, I have enough like I have fun just like randomly playing against people terribly. Yeah. And mostly always losing. And then it's like, okay, well, clearly I need to like study some stuff, like some basic yeah. like openings or basic checkmate patterns or whatever. But then I'm just like, well, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that. That like pushes against our like understanding of like tabletop board gaming, I think, like hobby board gaming, where it's sort of like the what's the speak of Dr. Kinesia, like the Dr. Kinesia oh, quote. Winning right? is the where, objective, but not the point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And when you when you're studying, like, what are you doing? You know? Sure. I will say with Go, I think, you know, Curl and I have been playing digitally together. I think a lot of it to me, the game does feel to encourage this sort of like learner teacher relationship because of this like disparity in skill level that so naturally would come to the fore. And there's also handicap handicaps that you typically play with, uh, where one side will just get extra pieces to play the board. So I think that's fun. That's like an aspect of games that you don't see in hobby games as much, right? Because we just kind of like, let's all just play a game of underwater cities and we're all on the same playing field and let's see yeah. how it comes out. But I, I kind of like that. It reminds me, right, of like growing up and learning to play games and it, it's a it's a different side that's that's sort of fun um, and sometimes being better at games makes them more fun to play sure right like we see yeah. that in like the fighting video games that we play a lot right yeah. where you're like watching like a super skilled player and you're like how fun would it be to be that good at this game yeah. like that would just be the best i honestly jake too with go there's a, f a little bit of like i mean it's just placing pieces onto a board there's no like uh, technical input skill required like there are in fighting games. There's no like down tilt, up tilt. Right, exactly, yeah. But <laughs> Quarter circle, back back, BA. Yeah, nonetheless, Krill still will play these moves sometimes in certain positions where I can see he's doing something clever and then all of a sudden I've like had my ankles broken. They're like, well, yeah. how did you do that? I just got schmooved so hard. Um, so that's kind of fun too. Like I like, so there's, there's great joy in losing a game if you lose it in a way that it's sort of remarkable that the opponent did this neat thing, right? Yeah, so I'm still totally. in that stage of playing and still enjoying it in that sense. Yeah, but maybe I'd like, like to get to, one. You have to set the controller down and you're just like, wow. Wow, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hope I cool. don't end up in a Twitch clip. <laughs> yeah, exactly, 100%. Um, <laughs> All right, well, that's been three games that feature blocking heavily. Why don't we spend the last 20 minutes of this episode talking about blocking moves, blocking in board games? <laughs> Maybe we just start with what does the existence of blocking play do to a decision space? Yeah, I love that question. So one cool thing is, I think about this, if there are blocking moves, we can presuppose that it's already a shared decision space, right? My moves have the ability to impact your moves. We're not playing solitaire games. We're making decisions where my decision is impacting your decision. So we're inherently twined. And what I do is going to shift what you can do. So I think for me, so much of why I like games that do have blocking moves 
is my path through the decision space isn't mine alone to decide, right? It's going to force me to make decisions that I wouldn't otherwise make and have to react to those decisions on the fly because I might be able to guess what, what you do, Jake, but I won't always be right. Um, so that's going to force me to have to adapt. And sometimes adapting your plan in the middle of a game and then finding an edge on top of that is just tremendously rewarding. So I think the for me, a game that features blocking, the potential for that to be fun comes down to how much potential is is there within the decision space to find another path that ends up being the right path, um, even though I've been blocked. The downside being sometimes if you have a really clear plan that looks really fun to pursue and you get blocked, there's potentially a lot of emotional pain that, yeah. that is inflicted upon you that can be tough to stomach, especially if the decision space doesn't leave other viable options or if maybe you've put yourself in a position where there aren't other viable options. Even games where you don't have viable options can still be fun if they are sufficiently light. Sure. Hey, that's my fish is a great example where it's like you get blocked and now you drown. Yeah, you yeah. Lose. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but it's still really like fun and satisfying because it is so quick. I think where it gets really tiresome is when you have to do a lot of pre-work sort of thing. Mm. I think a game like Ark Nova or something like that where you have, okay, I want to do this and now I have to meet these requirements and I need to have this card in this space and now I'm thinking like three or four turns ahead. Yeah, And I don't think Ark Nova suffers from like blocking in the same way at all. But, you know, in a game like that where you have to think through a whole bunch of things and to get back to, okay, I need to do this. And then right before your move, it gets taken. And then you just are like, okay, well, sorry, everybody, this is going to take me a minute because yeah. I have to think through a whole chain of things again. I think that is where blocking can lead to the biggest like negative player experience. Sure. It would be no fun to have be assigned a homework assignment, do three hours of work on it, and then show up and someone says, oh, your teacher says this other person just turned in that assignment. You actually have to do this other one. Yeah. So I think when you have tons of planning involved in that way, uh, we're thinking about the implications of the implications of the implications of moves. That's where, yeah, there can be a little bit too much. And I think maybe that's why for some people in Keyflower, um, a game that features a lot of blocking that we've covered on the show that I really enjoy and you like a little bit less. Yeah, I, remind I think, me how the blocking shows up there. So in Keyflower, there's blocking in two ways. One Keyflower, uh, one of the primary ways is that everyone has these workers that are also the currency that you're using to bid. And those come in three, really four different colors. And whenever someone uses one of those workers, uh, the color that's used to activate either a worker placement spot or to bid with ends up being the color that you have to also use to use it. And in Keyflower, you can use anyone's tiles, not just your own. So let's say, Jake, I I have this uh, jeweler that produces one gold. And when I upgraded it, it instead produces two. So I invest some time and effort. I upgrade my jeweler to produce two gold instead of oh, one. Yeah, yeah. And now, now I, I don't get to use it yet because I spent <laughs> this my time upgrading This is giving me flashbacks. Uh, let's say I'm out of blue meeples and Jake has just a fat stack of blue meeples. It's hidden information. Uh, but say Jake plops down one blue meeple on my new jeweler. Oh, wait. I had a ton of red meeples and I was going to play a red meeple onto my jeweler and get to use it. But now Jake blocked it by playing a blue meeple. And for the rest of that round, maybe I'll never get to use that action that I just developed. And part of that is that, you know, the spaces, the tiles in my area are mine, but the ability to use them is not mine alone. So that blocking yeah. can be painful. And in Keyflower, there's usually... So that's that kind of like classic worker placement blocking, blocking. where 
it's you know agricola i went to this space you cannot yeah exactly go do something else and usually in keyflower there's sufficient other things to do but sometimes they won't be quite as good and i think jake that Part of what's really important here, the sort of homework metaphor that you brought up, and Keyflower kind of brings us to the fore, is that blocking games That's need... your metaphor. Thank you. But you, yeah. it was your, your idea. Yeah. You, you raised the point. I think the important thing I just here, don't want necessarily... I don't know that I want my name necessarily on that metaphor. It was a good metaphor. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're right. No. Okay. But you mean you've never shown up in class and been told to do a different assignment right in <laughs> yeah, class? Like, that's not like a real thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. You should you should have been in my school. It was cutthroat. We were all speeding through everything. No, but I think you need a sufficient degree of fuzziness in, in these games, right? When it becomes obvious that Jake wants to do X, and if I block X, Jake will do Y. Um, if I can solve the whole board state, it's all going to tense up and be much less interesting than if... I think Jake wants to do this move, so I'm going to block it, and then I'm not really sure what he'll do next. And then it also creates opportunities for, I think wants to do Jake wants to do this move, but maybe you don't, right? Going back to that thing that you mentioned in Hansa, where you put this piece on this route that you think is going to be important, but it doesn't pay off. The blocking gambles, they should feel like gambles to some extent, right? Like where... I think this is the right place to block. And sometimes it might be exactly right. And sometimes it might be wrong. And a blocking game kind of needs to live in that state where it's my my vision of the game versus your vision of the game. Uh, and we're jockeying for who has the right perspective based on what we both want to do. That's why it's interesting. Is yeah. because it highlights that interconnectedness. Definitely. I love that. And I, I was thinking about what is blocking and what is, you know, not. And I don't think, Blocking is any time you take away an opportunity from any player. Uh, right? Like if you draft a card, that's not necessarily blocking. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, if let's say uh, Star Realms or some other sure. deck building game with like a market of cards. Like mm -hmm. if I take a card, I don't really consider that blocking in most instances. Yeah. I, you know, it could be like like hate drafting exists, but that to me is like separate from blocking in in some some kind of small way so in your mind blocking at least in some part has to do with a, a physical space though yeah, i guess i guess hate drafting is blocking as i said that i was like that's not right because that definitely is like i'm specifically taking away this card from one other player yeah. but just adding like that's the reason we have the term hate drafting and we wouldn't just consider normal drafting like blocking right when i'm yeah. taking a card with the goal of advancing it's the intent that matters, right? If I'm taking a card with the goal of advancing my strategy, then I'm not really blocking you, even yep. though I've took away that opportunity of you to have that card. I've given you the opportunity to have a different card. And that's true in some of the sort of blocking moves that we talked about, right? Like in Keyflower, there's that sort of same sense of blocking uh, where there's other things to do usually. But I think that partially maybe why hate drafting and star realms from that shared display doesn't always feel like a blocking move is there's usually equally good things to do. Yeah, uh, like there's true substitutes. Now that I'm talking about it, I think intent matters. Interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, it's difficult to say like any move in abstract is blocking. Yep. You know, even in Agricola, right? Like if I take a move to build fences and my opponent doesn't have any wood available to them, that's not blocking. Sure. Right. I I take because there's like a zero percent chance. Ah, uh, I see. Even, I see. You know what I mean? Whereas yep. like. And Agricola is a game where it almost almost all moves are blocking because you kind of want to do everything. And the way the board builds up, there's 
just spaces that are more valuable than others that are definitely going to get taken that round by one of you. Yeah. Uh, so you taking it is blocking, but I think there are a lot of games too that kind of like live in this space where you can play it as a blocking game or you could choose not to. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Babylonia kind of comes into play there to some extent too, especially when games are zero sum. I think there's even more potential room for those blocking moves, right? Because what I take away from you is a direct benefit to me. Um, so I found that when I'm playing Babylonia at two player, it ends up being an even more uh, fightier blocking game because we're sort of incentivized to do that. Whereas at higher player counts, it has that classic dynamic where maybe I don't want to expend my energy hurting someone else. I just want to focus on helping myself and hope that other players will get in the way of each other and all be the one who benefits. I think that you bringing up intent is really important because of your point of sort of card drafting. Sometimes, you know, if you're just drafting from a shared display and it, what's best for me hurts, maybe just takes the opportunity away from you, but it's not directly what was best for you. It doesn't feel the same, but if I take a combo, well, the piece, decision space is different. Like you're thinking about a totally different consideration type of, yeah. Right. Where if, if, if that enters into your mind of like, they want this. Yeah. Even though maybe it's like this other piece is, you know, it's other space. This other card is slightly better for me. Yeah. But the detrimental effect of my opponent is much greater than this other card, which is slightly worse. And I, you know, like as soon as you're thinking along those lines, like you're engaging in like sort of a blocking type mechanism. So like in broom service, we all have these shared cards that dictate yeah. what we can do. If I go behind you and I'm just playing a card to my benefit, uh, I just want to, you know, use the hill witch because I really need to score a potion on a hill or mountain. Uh, and that's just for me. Maybe I do that and it's not a blocking move, but say I see Jake, you really need to use the hill witch. And I choose to play the hill witch for just the plus three points. I have no ability to score on a hill, but I'm just doing it to block you. That's a that version. The second one is a blocking move, and the first one right. maybe isn't a blocking move. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You'd be really mad at me, by the way. Right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, we wouldn't. Be, <laughs> we would not be talking for like a good five minutes. No, yeah. not really. Um, <laughs> it's all making me think that like some games are blocking games, where other games are not, even if they have the opportunity. Yeah. To have blocking or hate drafting or whatever. And I think the distinction there is games that you can't play without entering that decision space. Yeah. Like those are blocking games. That's like, hey, that's my fish. That's Hansa Teutonica. I think that Keith, that's Go, right? Sure. Uh, I think Keyflower and Broom Service are games that sort of live in the middle, right? Yeah. Where to play at a high level. You have to engage in that, but you can just play the game for yourself. Yep. And still like do everything. You're not like not using a part of the game. Yeah. And then there are other games where you really can't block each other. Yeah. Like we were, we've been playing a lot of Architects of the West Kingdom, which is in uh, beta on Board Game Arena. And that feels like a worker placement game that is just like so far to the other end of the spectrum to like, what if there was a worker placement game where you like really can't block anything? There's like yeah. a small exception, right? With like the roundup space where you can, you know, take some people's pieces off the board. But even that's not like that blocking doesn't even them feel like from blocking. doing that action. Yeah, yeah it's because I can still just do that action again. It's just like decreasing the value of it. And you, it, assuming they even want that at right. that point. Yeah, it's exactly. It's difficult to know. 
And there, I guess there's a tiny bit in the number of build actions available, but that's not even, it doesn't even feel like blocking because, so this is a timer for the game. It varies by player count, but say within a game of Architects, there's 15 builds that can happen for, for any player across the, the whole game. Yeah. So that doesn't feel like blocking because the game just ends when they run out. So it kind of feels like you're just taking a slice of the pizza. Yeah. Like rushing the end game, I would not consider that a blocking move. Right. Like, you know, that's... Yeah. Yeah, sure, you're like taking away long-term opportunities from your opponents, but again, it doesn't have that same type of intent. Like I'm doing this move to take away an opportunity that I think you like specifically want. Yep, taking a slice of pizza is way different than putting the pizza in the fridge and saying don't open the fridge, right? Yeah. Like that's the that's the difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in in architects here at best, always just taking a slice of pizza. And in games like Go or in Keyflower, sometimes you're sticking it in the fridge. Yeah. And sometimes architects, you say like, oh, I think you want to take six pieces of pizza yeah. and I'm going to make it so you can have at most one next yeah. turn. But, yep. but I, yeah, I find that often the other person's like, that's fine. I was actually going for the soda anyway. Yeah. So I totally, I really, <laughs> I really enjoy games with blocking, but I feel like I need them to punctuate my game night, not always be the only thing I'm doing, right? It offers this really specific feel uh, and this really specific experience that's kind of similar between blocking games that can really amp up the, the sort of the tension in a game, the drama in a game. But if that's all I'm experiencing, it's a little bit too much. It's kind of like watching a, a horror film or something, right? Like I, I want that to be a part of my movie watching experience. But if it was the only game I was playing for me and my taste, it might be a bit too much and it might get to feel a little bit samey. And I think from a design perspective, you know, finding ways to have blocking really play a key role can be a great way to raise the skill ceiling potentially, where it's sort of like identifying that really good blocking move in Keyflower feels great and I think sets you apart. But if it just becomes the whole game, it's going to start to feel sort of samey and it doesn't offer the emotional range that it has when the right answer is sometimes you play a blocking move and sometimes you don't. Yeah, I think I like games a lot that have that are kind of in that middle ground sure. space that like afford players the opportunity to do blocking. Um, but it's like not the, the whole game. It's not the whole game. And also perhaps even further than that, it's rare that that is like the optimal move, sure. right? Like so that if you're choosing to engage in blocking, you are taking a gamble because there's likely going to be something that's more profitable to you to do other than that. And so you really have to be sure that that other person is really wanting that. I think a game like Castles of Burgundy fits in really well here where like generally you want to advance your game state and do the thing that's going to get you the most points. But a discerning player will identify probably a move or two throughout the game where it's like, actually, my best move is to take this piece that's going to help somebody else there. I'm not giving you the piggies. Yeah. Yeah. I, the other thing I think that's really cool about blocking games that fall in that sort of middle ground is it does feel like they give you kind of like a dynamic. I, I keep finding that I like games that offer dynamic and different play experiences. And like a game as simple as Azul can Ugh. feel so different depending on, you know, how aggressive people are choosing to go towards blocking and people can yeah. shoot themselves in the foot absolutely by saying like by trying too hard to take yep. away what their opponent wants to do and it, and then you know i say okay that's fine yeah you're right i did want to fill out my red 
two space there, but you just gave me the opportunity to fill out four black ones. And now I'm just have more tiles down than you at this point in the game. And over the long run, that could help me, you know, so it really forces you again to, to strike that balance between advancing your game state and blocking. And I think that, so this is the the great takeaway, I think, of this episode for me, and we should, this is a good point to end on, that you've made me realize, Jake, is the reason why playing Hansa Teutonica on a set board, a static board, there's no variability. The reason that works is because of when people block a move from you within your decision space, that's forced variability. Now I have to go do something else. You know, I, I raised this point earlier, but it really is true that part of the joy of these blocking games is that it create you can take a game that feels fairly set and fairly static but every time you play because of the interaction you're going to be forced to to make a move that you wouldn't make if you were playing the game on the table by yourself right i could play keyflower where i just kind of like spent my meeples i did a solo building thing and i could really optimally score something and the strategies that i use in that sort of toy game version of keyflower where i'm just playing solo by myself are going to be so different than the strategies that kind of come together when i'm blocked from a certain scoring tile or blocked from a certain production tile and i have to kind of cobble the pieces together and i think that blocking games can make you feel very creative as you approach the game in a really rewarding way so that's like the most successful version that comes out of it is that like forced creativity of exploring the decision space differently because you have less agency over how you're going to explore the decision space yourself yeah well said and and those trade-offs you highlighted in hans are just so key too because that really distills it down because every single turn you are really making a gamble about if you're going to block somebody. It's like, you know, if I'm making a blocking move, I'm wagering like somebody's going to move this piece, yep. you know? Yeah. Uh, and if it they don't, that's bad for me because I have given up the opportunity to just try and complete a route that I actually want yeah. to complete, you know, and yeah. started working towards that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a great place to live for like a game that's like a pure blocking game yeah good blocking games you need to have speculation that's like they're all that's the the framework that supports them is like i think that jake wants x and that's a i'm speculating it's not i know jake wants to do this right or or like the milestones and terraforming mars where you're like okay now you're speculating with time like this is the moment that to take this to take this and and that's all really fun stuff so anyway This is kind of a new episode format. Maybe we were rambling a little bit there, but I think some interesting conversations to be had. I definitely enjoyed the conversation, Brendan. So thank you for that. And uh, as always, but especially now, even more than others, we'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. Uh, So you can let us know in our Discord. That's probably the best place to do it. Brendan and I are you know, constantly in there checking out what people have to say and and, and discussing games with them. Um, but you can also send us an email to uh, decisionspa at gmail.com or a note on Twitter at decisionspa or uh, to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast and yeah. you can let us know there. We go a long way. Yeah, review the episode within the review of the show. Meta. It's great. Yeah. Um, that would be a 10 out of 10. Review. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as always, thank you to Hembry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. And we'll be back next week with another topical episode of Decision Space. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.